Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Drew, how many top shots do you own? Oh, well, how many are there now, right? There's, there's a huge scarcity problem. So I think there's only five. So I think I own three of the five. I'm going to be honest with you. And I think a lot of our listeners right now will be as informed about Top Shot as I am. Uh, I had heard about Top Shot kind of vaguely and casually over the last week or two. And it's this thing that's blown up hugely to where these virtual sports cards, which instead of a picture of a player with statistics on the back, you get a video highlight of a play like a LeBron James dunk or a Steph Curry three-pointer. <sighs> Drew, I can only tell you, I can only tell you that this this would feel so much like a scam, except that it's being sold directly to consumers by the National Basketball Association. <laughs> right. <laughs> that this it, it's done like over two hundred million dollars in trading on this on this platform that, that, that doesn't all go directly to the NBA. The NBA's only made a few million dollars off it, as far as I understand directly. But then there's this secondary aftermarket. They're digital training cards. And, and when I first heard about it, tell me if this was your experience. When I first heard about it and I heard some people talking about it, I thought, well, wow. Okay, so this must be that somehow people are buying the rights, the intellectual property rights to highlights. And right. that somehow they're going to get royalties when these are played either on the internet or on TV or something. No, no, there's a, there's actually not even any exclusivity. Like you can watch, I could go to YouTube and watch a clip of this digital top shot, but I don't actually own that top shot. Only the people who own the top shot own the top shot. And there's only a few hundred for any specific card. So it's like a trading card, but it's digital, but they don't actually own anything of it at all because the image in the top shot itself is out there somewhere. It, yeah, it's the uh, the value that's assigned to it is is way beyond my understanding. And admittedly, I wasn't really much of like a collector. I'm not a collector of anything now. Yeah. So it's hard for me to fully appreciate it, I guess. But I'm not getting how I, I wasn't in the same impression as you. I thought you, you'd be buying essentially the like the rights to this piece of media. Yeah. And so, you know, OK, at least I can wrap my head around that. I can at least, you know, someone really wants to see it. There's maybe a small fee. 
some kind of royalty. That, but that's not even the case. Yeah. So yeah. It, it is bananas <laughs> to me. It's, I, it is a really yeah. cool little graphic, and I haven't. Uh, I, I thought about trying to buy one, but apparently it's getting harder and harder to buy them, and and people are lined up online to try to to try to get a pack. So it's like old school trading cards where you get right. you can buy a pack, and then maybe you've got a special LeBron James dunk. Like the one that sold for two hundred eight thousand dollars, two hundred eight two zero eight two hundred eight thousand dollars recently, um, it, and it's just this phenomenon of human beings when something is scarce, and right. people say, yeah. "Hey, this is important or this is worthwhile," and a bu- and enough people believe it, then all of a sudden it does have value, just like cryptocurrency. And you and you got to try not to think about it too hard. The funniest thing about all of this has been when Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban has been adamant. He said, hey, this is a real market. And his explanation for why it's a real market is he says, hey, it's just like trading cards. To which my first response is like, yeah, trading cards are kind of BS too, except that because enough people <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. think they're important, then they do have value, but it kind of fluctuates up and down depending on how many people think that it's a good investment versus how many people like them for their inherent beauty. And like, Because I get this with at least... With precious metals, with jewels, even with cryptocurrency mm-hmm. to a certain degree, there is real scarcity there, right? And, and with with precious metals, there's an appreciation of their beauty, and at least it's something tangible that you can hold. With cryptocurrency, there's well, there, yeah, there's an intrinsic made. value for manufacturing and technology, and yeah. every, like there's applications that but you with, can appreciate. Yeah, with this, I just don't because it's a it's a graphic. That you could easily, that you could easily just, you can look at it on YouTube, and it's a really cool graphic. But it, but as long as enough people, I guess the question is, is this some bubble where people at some point are going to lose interest, and when they lose interest, then a lot of that inherent value is gone, or or do you think that this will become just something that us olds don't understand, but the young kids like Mark Cuban uh, just just appreciate being able to keep a wallet full of these these top shots it's it's already firmly in the olds don't understand column for me so that ship has sailed but the (laughs) the the other question is you know like what what's this going to do and i feel like when i was reading this it was like reminding me two weeks ago or you know six months ago time has no meaning now but when the gme uh story broke and you know you were looking at everything that was going on with Robinhood and that GME stock just blowing up and the manipulation involved. What's there. that? GameStop? Is that, yeah, is GameStop. GameStop's call sign yeah. GME. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah that's what the kids I, call it. That's yeah, no, but call. I, I wouldn't look too. I, I, I knew. I know me. I know me, and I knew that if I looked too far <laughs> into the GameStop or any of those other things, that I'd be buying a go down the rabbit hole. Crap yeah. load of GameStop. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, my brother has some. I mean, he was watching it like a hawk. But I mean, the the thing that was. That was so weird about it is you're seeing something that is clearly like some I, I'm not going to like to have a hot take on what aspect of the economy is broken that uh-huh. led to that. But something is like you're watching it going this, this something's broken here. Well, it's, uh, and then, and then I saw this story and I went like, you know, the NBA was like, oh, you thought that was broken. Watch this. <laughs> and then they just like doubled down on every aspect of it. And I just feel like, you know, I don't know how long this can last. Are the players getting paid? Who's getting paid? How does this work? Like, oh, yeah, I'm the sure players, okay, so the players do get some. They've been gifted some of these, and then the players can sell them and keep all of the the money that they make off of whichever ones they've sold. But oh, that's the one part. 
that's the one part that I kind of get that this is interesting because it's on blockchain and we'll get the blockchain in a minute. Yet one more thing I don't understand. We started with yeah. it. We started last episode where I admitted that I didn't understand what meta means. And now we're just going further and further <laughs> into things that I don't Classic know. sports podcast. Like, yeah. <laughs> like blockchain. So, okay. Let's say LeBron James owns one of his own highlights on this top shot. And then right. he sells it. Because everything is very transparent, you can watch the chain of ownership, and because you always know, hey, there might be 200 of those out there, and these are the 200 people that own them. If you own the one that LeBron James previously owned, I'll admit that part of it. Now all of a sudden you've got scarcity. Like that's like that 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 feels a little bit of cool. That's like the episode of Seinfeld when George was all excited because he had thought he had John Voight's old LeBaron convertible. But right, exactly. But is it that the players have the first right to purchase? Like, do they are they the ones? It doesn't not, work that way, right? Not all like of them. They, I think that's just a promotion they've done with a few of them. But then some players have gotten in on the trading too. So you might it might not be LeBron James. I don't know. It it could be. Hey, James Harden owned this Kevin Durant card at some point. Right. But you get this top. You, you know, when you're looking at it and you say like, oh crap, look at this. Look at this. Look how hard yeah. he used to own this. He looked at it. He was looking at it on his special jewel encrusted cell phone and everything. Yeah. That's yeah. a great way to gauge just like how into each player is into their own highlights. Yeah. <laughs> like how many, somebody's amassing all yeah of just like a top, top 10 list of like some <laughs> of the guys you least suspect are only buying their own digital trading cards relentlessly and, and i'm trying not to be too critical of this because honestly if you if you start to really just step back and have perspective all of it on, on all of it anything with sports right. memorabilia is all based on this whole industry of sports in general which is people wearing silly lycra uniforms running around throwing balls at each other like that right. none of that makes any sense so it's all yeah. what's what's more ridiculous why, why is one thing more ridiculous than the other <laughs> yeah it's all just a a real deep dive into what we value yeah. <laughs> and then if you want to get really deep yeah i mean you can talk about like fiat currency and what we do when we went to the credit standard back in the day, we human beings, we human beings uh, have evolved to be able to believe in imaginary things. And that's been our strength as a species is that you can actually rally millions of people around, you know, basically constructs like the idea of patriotism and stuff like that. Those are all things that that aren't necessarily tangible but they're real in our minds and you can rally people around that. Yeah, and nothing so far bad has happened around <laughs> that. I mean, not, that's I not a single that's, thing. <laughs> I think that's a I, that's a hot take and I, I I like it. I'm not no, that's not even a take. That's just a description. <laughs> it's of, just a fact. No, 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 that's a it's a like what I'm describing is just a yeah. description of the way human brains work. You know, right. that's how like back in the days there was it calorie shells or something it one society had just these little shells it was one of the first forms of fiat currency where it said like hey this shell is worth 10 pounds of rice right and but as long as you just have this shell then such and such and that's this it's, it's and then it turned into like hey this dollar is worth x amount of gold and whatnot um and then we just kept going from there but you're right that our ability to believe in things whether they be various deities or anything else it can be corrupted and it can turn really ugly. Well, I, I, mean, worry, I, I worry about some of these. I worry about somebody that's like cashing in their 401k for a top shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, there will be a headline just like that. Guaranteed. I thought, I thought uh, well, one of the best things 
one of the best lessons I ever learned was that I got my first big contract or my first renegotiated contract in 1999, which was at the height of the first dot-com bubble. And, you know, <laughs> if you didn't own Perfumania and Cisco, you're a damn fool. And yeah. I, I was heavy. I went heavy, heavy tech. And then, you know, the, the bubble burst. Luckily, I was young enough in my career that I learned my lesson. And... Like all these internet companies that hadn't, that had no inherent value. They were all just promises and they were selling at infinity, infinity profit to earnings ratios or, um, wait, what's the, yeah, PE ratios. So I, uh, wait, what is that? No, not, no, price to earnings ratios. So I'm all, I'm pretending to know all most of these words. So just keep going. (laughs) Just roll it. So, so anyway, yeah, I've, I've been through that. And I worry about any time anybody gets too sucked into this. And look, Drew, I'm a little bit older than you. The first time trading cards were huge back in the 1980s. I mean, you'd, you'd go, you'd have this little book. You'd get these magazines every month or these price guides. It would show you, oh, hey, yeah. this, this Pete Rose is worth five, $57. And then you'd go into the card shop with your Pete Rose and you'd say, "Sir, can I can I please have my fifty seven dollars?" And you're like, ah, "No, no, that's not what they're." But all these trading card companies were just pumping up the value of all these cards, and it created this hysteria to where, you know, grown men investment funds were created around trading cards, and then eventually yeah. people realized, "Oh, there's no inherent value in these things, and they're just overproduced like crazy." I think that the top shot people understand that part of it obviously i mean they're they're pretty savvy people i i wonder what happens when more companies get in on it when it's not just top shot and it's and but well no this is through the MBA well they though. can't though right yeah, it's right, through the right. league that's yeah. the thing like that's yeah. why it's, that's why this is so interesting to me is so they'll be able to maintain oh. scarcity right yeah, well, they can. I mean, they just have the ability to manage the media itself and all the rights associated with every single highlight. I'm sure. It's man. I remember. I mean, I I grew up not not being a collector, not being into trading cards. The only trading card I ever had, and I'm not a baseball guy, but being from the Bay Area, I had a dog growing up, and this is going somewhere. And this dog used to get out relentlessly; it would jump over the fence. And we had this awesome neighbor would always grab the dog because it was always in its yard running around would bring it over just a really nice like a younger couple i was probably like eight or nine at the time and one day he comes over and he's i can see immediately even as a kid that he's this guy is devastated and he's like look i i'm so sorry i gotta talk to you and your mom and he explains that the dog got out and he was backing out of his driveway and he ran over our dog and the dog killed the dog and i mean this guy is just torn apart understandably and he he's he's just apologizing relentlessly he's like look i'd love to have you over cook you guys dinner just you know try to make amends with you guys i'm so sorry and he goes into this guy i realize is a diehard collector this guy has he's a huge oakland a's fan and back then i mean this was like 89 earthquake era when they were having the world series there and he goes back there and he comes he comes back we're having dinner and he goes, I just want to give you something. I mean, it's it's the least I can do to try to make amends with you guys. And it's a signed baseball from the Bash Brothers, Jose yeah. Canseco and Mark McGuire, and a card, like a limited edition card that he had in this like beautiful case. It's all signed by him. He's like, I, I just want you to have this. And so he gives it to me, and I have no idea the value of whatever this is. And even now, I'm not really sure. You know, I assume that it would have gone for a lot. Gives it to me. 
And uh, and also, if you're about to look up that it's worth like a million dollars, please <laughs> please let me tell you where the story is going. Yeah. And then don't don't share this. Okay. And it gives it to me, and I you know I put it in my room. It sits on my shelf for however many years. Like you know, getting into like probably my sophomore, junior high school. And I remember at the time, you know, we grew up very modest background. I had no money and I was trying to figure out a way. I'm like, well, I don't have a job. That's too complicated. Get, getting a job is complicated. So what do I have? I grab the thing off the shelf and I ride my bike down to a pawn shop and I pawn it for, yeah. I think, 25 bucks. Yeah. So that so was the end of that. It was, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking. Don't worry. I don't want to press you too much. There's so many different cards with Bash Brothers on it. That was probably... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get it for the sake of your own. I think you got one over on the pawn shop by selling it for $25. No I way. Probably, really? I don't know. It's because, uh, look, there were so many special edition things floating around out yeah, there. Yeah, right. That, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where the market got flooded by a bunch of... Like, they saw the hot card. and Yeah, that probably was some fly-by-night operation. You're cool. I don't think it's fly by about it. Some guy back there just <laughs> counterfeiting <laughs> some, cards. Some dog-killing dude. That, yeah. Uh, now, now, if it turned out that that guy was like a serial killer or something that sold it to... But you wouldn't be able to... Well, look, you wouldn't Seth, be able to... I'm sorry I didn't, I'm sorry I didn't up the ante with... Uh, you know, a serial killer anecdote story. Well, no, 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 no. I'm saying like, because if you, because if it were something like that, like with this blockchain thing with the top shots where you, you've got a story behind the previous ownership, maybe there's something <laughs> then. Right. So right. that was the, the and, other question I yeah, had I'm going with it. And that guy was uh, Ted Bundy. <laughs> what? Okay. So do you know, do you know what blockchain is? Uh, I, I know it enough to probably like most people, I know enough to poorly explain it to someone else that knows less. Okay. We're going to yeah. do, okay. We'll so do I understand blockchain. that there's, there's like a running algorithm, I guess that you need to generate, you know, whatever it is, the currency. And the more times you do it, the longer it takes to generate it, creating, I think, I guess, I think, you know, I think more work. Little, no, I think that's process. a little different because that's what, that's what, uh, Bitcoin and everything. That's how they generate the bitcoins. But with right. the blockchain, it's a, they and they run that on a blockchain format. But that's di to keep track of everything. But I think that's different than the blockchain itself. Got it. The blockchain just keeps. I don't. I don't have a damn clue. Let's well, then about, I, I feel. Then I'm embarrassed that I just invested in it. We're too full. Uh, we're too far off. Of, uh, our, yeah, we are. We're too far yeah. out of our wheelhouse. Let's go to football. Uh, I was reading Houston columnist John McClain. Houston sports writer John McClain's mailbag on Friday. And I was really interested in answering one of these questions that John got. I want you to answer it. This is the question. I've wondered about the makeup of an offensive line. A few points. One, edge rushers are picked for speed, strength, and physical ability. Most of the good ones are not 300-plus pounds. Why are the offensive tackles that need to deal with them picked for height and weight? I would think quickness and strength would be key. For example, collegiate offensive guards are 6'3 or less, 290-pound gym rats. Edge rushers would never be able to get underneath and around them. Instead, they would get under the edge rushers, probably under their shoulder pads, and push them up off their feet. Well, that's a pretty ambitious... Uh, okay, maybe they'd have it at low <laughs> level. <laughs> like, every single okay. one, okay. if they're 6'2", they'd push them off of their feet. <laughs> they'd just lift them right off their feet. Got it. Just okay, that so, easy, guys. So, so this is a basic question about, all right... Offensive tackles have, I think, even increasingly so become uh, like centers in basketball where height is just of, of paramount impor importance. Have they have they overdone it with the offensive tackles? I mean, I think so. 
you know, I mean, I even remember, I mean, you may not recall some of the guys, you, you know, when we got to Houston, I mean, we had a couple guys that were, they were all Pac-12 players. Um, they had been there. I'd, uh, there were a couple that, you know, were with me at uh, like, the you know, uh, all-star games coming out of college. And they were like light body and some other guys that were like, I mean, they were six, seven. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it, it's hard to be effective at that length. And I don't think they ever got away from it. They, but coaches love they love thinking about how they can just literally create space between the quarterback and the rusher by just having someone with longer arms at the point of attack. Somebody with a huge radius. Yeah. Huge radius, yeah. Just the ability to cover more ground without trying. This is how I would answer the question. It's that, yes, you have a point that you want guys who are just flat-out good football players. I would argue that this I would argue that this guy asking the question goes a little too far in the other direction where he's saying, yeah. like, no, yeah. it'd be an advantage to be above 6'3". This is what I'd tell you. Yeah. From from personal experience, when you're trying to rush against a really good offensive tackle who's six foot seven or or, or taller, yeah, right? Is that and I'm not talking to you, Drew? You know this, but I would uh, say the person asking the question, you feel like a little child when that guy is that big and can actually move and has some strength and can use leverage and everything. You just can't get into him. So yeah, you can be. I mean, if you're Dwight Freeney, that's one thing. It's like Dwight Freeney, not a really tall guy, but it was just so blisteringly fast that it didn't matter. But for a lot of those guys, you just they have such a length advantage that unless you're six foot seven yourself, it's it's hard to overcome it. And then what I would also say is that if you are say a six foot, let's say you're a six foot two offensive tackle, you better be damn strong and athletic to be able to overcome those six foot five and six foot six defensive ends who can long arm you all day long, you know, who can just, who can do the same thing that those offensive tackles we were talking about can do. And, but now those are all, that's when you're going against, or that's when you're talking about guys who actually have the ability to do it. What coaches have done though, is they'll look at a guy like a Jonathan Ogden and say, wow, look at how much his length helps him. Yep. I'm going to take this other six foot eight guy who's not athletic at all and, and not strong and not all that mean. And I'm going to let him play in the NFL for six or seven years. Well, because I, because I, the football coach am so good at developing talent that someday he's going to be an all pro just you wait. And that's it. I mean, I think you just hit, you summed it up perfectly. That's exactly right. Is it's that they're, they're focusing on the wrong traits and you know, when those two, when those traits all align perfectly, I mean, yeah, you're getting a pro bowler. That's what you're getting. But those guys are so, so rare. And it's not always that, just like you said, I mean, the uh, it's kind of like the uh, hubris yeah. of a lot of these position coaches that think they can turn all those guys into another Ogden or another pro bowler like that. It's it's exceedingly rare. I think that they're in doing that, they're overlooking a lot of guys who had all the other traits, all the other abilities right. and missing out on the fact that like, Sure. Yeah. His, what it does, what that length does, and it does this in a lot of other different skill positions, you'd probably defensive tackle, I assume. I mean, some of the guys who are just like anchor type guys who can't be moved. I mean, the, you know, even in the event they're making mistakes, the, the offensive linemen who have that length, um, the margin of error just becomes greater. Right. You're assisted I mean, they, by geometry. You're assisted yeah. by geometry. Like yeah. when you do screw up, you have the benefit of the geometry to help you a little bit. And that's yeah. kind of that's what a lot, I think a lot of coaches really like is that in the event that there's a mistake, that they have bad footwork, 
at the very least, they're harder to get around. Right, right. And that's how they look at it. Well, yeah. I think what you want are the guys who don't make mistakes. Yeah. And who and are also athletic. <laughs> well, that's where I, I, and I have a little bit of an issue with the guy where he goes too far, where he says, talking about six foot three, 290 pound gym rat guards. Like he, yeah, he yeah. this guy, it's almost like, Hey, any of these college guards would be awesome. NFL offensive tackles. Yeah. It's it for every guy like that. There's somebody in the NFL who's much stronger, much faster, yeah. exact same body dimensions, but much stronger, much faster, all of those things. Uh, but when he says that edge rushers would never be able to get underneath and around them, well, that's just false. They would be able to get unless unless they're more athletic, and they don't have to get underneath them usually, except in the run game. Yep. But that is, there are a lot of tall guys who get taken advantage of because they just don't have good leverage. And, then, and also, when you watch those college, when you watch those college offensive linemen, so many of them, man, with like every, and, and including guys that get taken in the first round and eventually are going to be good, their pad level just sucks. It does. You know, Compared yeah. to compared to what they're going to have to do in the NFL, you can just watch yeah. a college offensive lineman and say, "Oh boy, this kid, this kid's going to get his ass whooped <laughs> early until yeah. he figures this out." Yep. So uh, one of the other things he said was two of the best off two of the best offensive linemen I can remember, or offensive lines I can remember had Nate Newton and Larry Allen at guard. Why are the guards the huge people movers? Um, Larry Allen played both guard and tackle. So, I mean, Larry Allen could just do whatever the hell he wanted. Uh, why are guards the huge people movers? I mean, a lot of that is just sim simply because the to go back to the geometry again, it's just that inside in there, there's a lot less room to move, and it's more about strength. Your strength can help you more on the inside. Your athleticism can help you more on the outside. Well, it it's that, but it's also obviously the center is going to be, you know, at the first point of attack. You yeah. know, just by virtue of the fact that they're going to be right on top of the guy because of the the line of scrimmage. The guards have the benefit of at least gaining generally a head of steam, you know, before they're going to be a little further off the ball. They can get one to two steps in before they make contact sometimes. So there you're going to have a guy who's going to be more stout at the point of attack, usually going against most teams that like to run heavier guys inside. So you're naturally going to have the guys who are skilled at, you know, trying to to create movement you know yeah. on the interior side i mean that's just like the nature of it it's it's only the you know the the rare teams that like to run you know i mean most people reference kind of the the broncos during you know the shanahan era where they like the smaller guys you know the more under undersized quick tech technicians who are more playing angles than anything else and not trying to get guys downfield yeah Which i think it's interesting you know and yeah and I'm, I'm, and I'm totally for, honestly, yeah, I do think, yes, that a lot of NFL coaches underestimate guys who are shorter, overestimate guys who are taller, and there's a lot of room for some of these guys. It becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy when you look in the NFL and you see all these offensive linemen. You say, well, look, all the tackles are six foot seven. Well, yeah, right. because those are the guys you're drafting in the first and second rounds. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the guys, oh, yeah. the guys that are six foot four are getting moved down to guard. And because that's what everybody believes, that that's why that's that that's where you go. So well, that's why I mean, you just look at how many guys I mean that you played with Seth and then some of the best guys I imagine that you played against during your career that you knew they were they were offensive linemen that were just you know six four six five yeah and drafted in later rounds right and they hung on and played for 10 years yeah i mean that i feel like that's f by far and away 
you know, the, the more common occurrence. And so it's offensive line specifically. It's interesting how that works. It's just harder to project, I guess. And it's harder to guys are afraid to guys are afraid to do anything that it's easy to afterwards say, wow, why did you make that move? Obviously the guy was going to suck. He's exactly it's protecting liability. I mean, the coaches so desperately want to assign some kind of value, some kind of metrics to those linemen when they're at the combine, they love, you know, I, I, one of the examples I remember, which is more of my era was uh, Robert Gallery when he was coming out of Iowa. I right, mean, right. Yeah, he's the perfect God, example. Loved, yeah. loved watching him run 40s and hit all the tests. And he was he was good. I mean, he was still okay. He wasn't as bad as a lot of people, I think, thought he was. I mean, he, he was, was just fine. a letdown because he was ballyhooed as this <laughs> incredible next big thing. Exactly. It was just so huge. Yeah. You know? And at the end of the day, it's, you know, how effective are you at stopping, you know, a speed rusher? Yeah. The, the one that always gets me was Jose Altuve in baseball because Altuve was for a long time. And I think there's either him or Tony Kemper vying for shortest guy in major league baseball, but it would always, it always make me chuckle that Jose Altuve was the shortest guy in baseball and one of the very best in baseball. And that's what it took for a guy who is five foot five to make it in major league baseball. Like, okay. Right. Presumably it, it's not just coincidence that the guy who's five yeah. foot five in the bed, like is the only guy that could have played in the major leagues. Yes. It's like, yeah. that's how good he had to be. I mean, the first day he went to camp in Venezuela for uh, the Astros, the camp they had down there, the Astros sent him home. He had to come back the next day and kind of keep knocking at the door before they even looked at him. So, yeah, I, there's I, I don't know what to do about it other than, you know, ask football coaches to stop being susceptible. Well, to I mean, there's <laughs> I know, there are so many defensive tackles, too, on the other side of the ball that were the same way. I remember like, tons of, so many nose guards that were like that. I mean, oh, yeah, like that are six foot tall and just impossible to. Yes, out. just yeah. impossible to move, but very athletic, extremely athletic, really quick. That's why I'm so. I was surprised that Aaron Donald didn't get somehow screwed over in the draft. Like I, like I thought yeah. I could have seen him falling yeah. into the top of the second round because he's too short or something. The Man. Daniel Jeremiah had tweeted out this. I thought it was interesting. He said, "We're two to three years away from personnel departments not caring about forty times. The game GPS data is going to replace it. Who cares what he ran in the forty? I know exactly what he ran in game conditions, and I have five years of data for context. Yes, that's all awesome. That's all true. Where I'm a little." <laughs> Where I'm a little confused about that is that Daniel Jeremiah was a scout forever. And all these scouts will always tell you, well, nobody really cares too much about 40 time. And yet, yet they will gush and gush and gush over guys 40 times. Everybody knows it's stupid. Everybody knows it's dumb. Everybody knows that there's hardly ever a situation in football where you're running 40 yards unimpeded the entire time in a straight line. And yet, they they can't break themselves of that addiction. Same as the two twenty five test at the combine. You know, like every year there's some guy that benches forty plus uh, on the on the two twenty five test, and people gush and gush about it. But then the very next comment will be, uh, "Has short arms, struggles with short arms." Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. He's not that strong on the football field. There are yeah. guys. There are really there are guys out there with, that can bench 225 20 times that are incredibly strong on the football field. It's just they're they're at a natural disadvantage because they've got freakishly long arms. Yeah. The, I mean, the lineman on the inside is that's a phenomenal example of that. I mean, so many D linemen, tons of O linemen were just horrendous at the bench test. Yeah. Horrendous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But awesome on the field. Awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, these, uh, that's where... Well, we talked about that a couple episodes ago about how just how dumb an exercise the bench press is. If you think about how much time and energy you spent in your life as a young man trying to get your bench up, what it yeah. could have been better better spent on. Like yeah, just, as, a, just, as a guy who obsessed over it, personally, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Like, if you could have you know? just gone out and done, done some more pass sets, would have benefited right. you more than doing all those bench presses. So, uh, okay, then we're in agreement. Yeah, there should be a, there should be an avenue for shorter offensive linemen, but not to the degree where I want every six foot three, two hundred ninety pound guard from college to come be an NFL offensive tackle. Yeah, There's that's a also that just a, into I mean, I, 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 yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I liked the entirety of that comment. That was great. It was actually pretty, pretty informed. But yeah, that yeah. that little section right there is definitely uh, it's underestimating just how many guards are out there that are that are not like that. They're also bigger and really athletic. I as a six three two ninety guy, I'm like right in my sweet spot, man. Like I think that all day every day. But I, I it, no, it's it's hard. I think I think some people don't realize what how big the difference is between college and the NFL and what freak shows the guys are in the NFL. So when you're watching two teams play in the big 12 and you see some kid dominating you think oh yeah. wow yeah he's got all that it takes and he gets up he gets in the nfl and he's just a guy you know and i think mean, you and i both had a chip on our shoulder when it came to a lot of stuff like that because you get some first round draft pick that thinks because he was all big 10 that, that well, he's the crap and you just you just love to beat those guys into the dirt yeah you try to i try to sum it up for people where i'm just like if there's you know three sort of aspects that make up a player you know and how how impressive they are or what it is that really you know makes them successful at the college level and it's like just general athletic ability speed and then power or strength you know especially yeah. like with the guys inside the box you know, you just think like at the college level, some of the guys can do really well. They'll make all conference, they'll get awards, they'll get some recognition, and they only really have to be very fast or really strong in some measure of athleticism. Yeah. Like if they just have one of those and they're exceedingly, you know, a standout in one of those, they'll be great. And the NFL, the vast majority of the time, they're both really fast, really strong, and probably really athletic yeah so they have all the traits just like dialed up you know and in college you're just rarely going against one guy who has all of those traits you know summed up into one person one player who can just excel like that so it's like there were only a handful of guys i remember all through college where i was like yeah that guy that guy just kind of has all the things going right now you know yeah, and then yeah. in the nfl you're just like hopefully a backup comes in because it'd be good to go just against a power guy again. <laughs> that'd be awesome i'm pretty exhausted by these guys that are both fast and lifting me which is uh probably a pretty good prelude to some of the draft talk we'll have coming up in the next couple months i'm going to pick your brain about some of these offensive linemen i got to uh, i got to go run and see who else the texans are going to shed from the roster today and uh let me offer you my condolences for your dog from 30 years ago <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I uh, yeah, I'm just sure hang, they're living hang, on a state uh, up upstate New York somewhere. Hang in there, sport. <laughs>